it's an awkward thing to bring up, but here's what I really think. He was edgy. He could be difficult. He insulted his students. People would mm. cry. <laughs> and he was sarcastic, but also very fun. He had grown up very poor in Huntington, West Virginia, and he probably craved fine things that he could never have. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is a podcast about objects and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warkess. Episode 3, Millinery, Missouri, Mercury. I'm holding a foot-tall, large antique case. Its tan leather exterior is chipped and beaten. It looks like a portable baby crib, with an oval-shaped lid resting on top. Holding this case with both hands, I can feel how light it is, but it's heavy enough to know that there is something inside. There's a tattered leather handle on the top of the lid. It's dangling by a thread, disconnected to the rest of the case. The ornate keyhole on the front is busted, so I popped off the lid to look inside. There is an antique top hat, like one worn by Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill. In this case, was a hat box. The hat is beautiful. I can feel the beaver fur around the crown to the edges of the brim. The top hat itself is about seven inches tall with a slight curl to the brim. It smells like dust, sweat, and treated fabric. Hiding at the base of the crown is a jet black ribbon which hugs the beaver fur tightly. The hat oozes formal Victorian style. I picture it as the final accessory to a matched three-piece suit. I did think about the amount of chemicals that may have been on this hat. One most notable was mercury. Not wanting to test this theory out, I carefully put the hat back upside down in the box. I was about to wash my hands when I peered down the inside turquoise silk lining of the top hat. That was when I saw it. On the very bottom inside the crown, seven inches deep, were printed words. Henry Knoll, 1019 Franklin Avenue, St. Louis, Missouri. The investigation was in full swing. I put all of this information into my computer, asking one important question. Was this the name of the man who bought this hat, the hat maker, or the salesman? One search on newspapers.com yielded five advertisements from a St. Louis German-American newspaper. It was Henry Knoll's hat shop. Each December ad included a small top hat illustration, a name, and an address. The pictures and Henry Knoll's hat shop were the same but the addresses each year were different. The Franklin Avenue address printed on the hat was the same address in only one of these advertisements. It was from 1885. That's 20 years after the Civil War. President Grover Cleveland was just starting his first term. So it looked like Henry Knoll was a milliner, which is a hat maker, from the mid-1880s, and I'm holding his fashionable masterpiece. I jotted down the three clues. Millinery, Missouri, Mercury. 
Before I went to look for Noel's family history, I first wanted to know the history behind top hats in general. What did top hats mean for men's fashion? Did top hats fall out of style? Did that affect milliners and dealers negatively? Here to answer some of these questions is Kimberly Christman Campbell. She's an LA-based fashion historian and author who most recently wrote, Worn on This Day, The Clothes That Made History, in 2019. Hello, Kimberly, can you hear me? Yes, hi, how are you? Yeah, great to finally meet you, and thank you so much for joining me on Object Obscura. Could you just state your name and what you do? My name is Kimberly Christman Campbell, and I'm a fashion historian. And so you also said that you're a, you're a curator as well. I'm a former curator at the Huntington Library and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in the Costume and Textiles Department. And so what does a typical day for a curator entail? You know, there's no typical day, and that um, makes it a lot of fun. You could yeah. be dressing mannequins. You could be doing research. You could be cataloging garments, preparing an exhibition or a catalog. There's a lot of different stuff that goes into curating, and it keeps it really interesting. In general, in like simple layman's terms, what makes a top hat a top hat? What makes it distinguished from other types of hats? Well, top hats are distinguished by their very high, narrow crown uh, and a very shallow brim. The construction changed. It uh, started out being made from beaver fur like the tricorn hat. The tricorn hat is essentially a triangular leather hat. Think founding fathers, like what Benjamin Franklin would wear. And then by about the mid-century, hat makers had found cheaper alternatives to beaver fur. Well, all kinds of furs were used and mixes of them too, rabbit fur and, and other kind of domestic mm. furs. And it was often overlaid on either a stiffened cotton or cardboard base even to give it that stiffness that, that leather would have. And of course, uh, actual leather top hats were worn by policemen and firemen. Straw top hats were worn in the summer. So they were made in a lot of different materials at a lot of different price points. I then discussed the printed name and address in the top hat. One thing I'm not sure of, I can't remember, is when hats started being labeled, because we didn't get labels in clothing until about 1860, but shoes were labeled much earlier. And I, I don't know if that's true of hats as well. But there's been subtle changes in the materials and the construction over about 100, 200 years. But overall, a top hat is pretty recognizable and hasn't changed a lot. The changes were so subtle. The height changed, the width changed, the curvature of the brim and the crown changed. Unfortunately, though, because they were worn for a long time and, and these hats had a long life, just because you can figure out when it was made doesn't mean that's when it was worn. It could have been worn for 20 years and even by several different people. The top hat was a very rare example of something that stayed in fashion for a very long time without changing much. So it seemed to have a lot of different kind of resurgences in, in fashion and in style, and especially in America. What were some of those resurgences for top hats? Well, it became uh, less popular around the 1870s. It came into use in the very late 18th century and replaced the tricorn hat that had been the norm for about 100 years before that. But it was not really the, the tall stovepipe hat that we think of and often associated with Abraham Lincoln until about the middle of the 19th century. And at that point, men of all ages and walks of life wore them indoors and out, day and night. It was just a part of your, your daily dress. However, within about 20 years, by the 1870s, it became reserved for more of the upper middle classes. 
while the cheaper and more casual and much more practical bowler hat became the choice of the working man. And then by the 1890s, it was really reserved for formal wear only. It wasn't something you wore all day, every day anymore. The top hat stayed a part of very formal dress right up till the 1960s. I mean, the top hat was a status symbol. It was expensive. People willed them to their descendants in their wills because it was something that could be worn again because it hadn't gone out of style and because it was worth hanging on to. It still remained a high-status item and a major expense. Hmm, interesting. The actual hats themselves seem to be more gender-fluid. Women are now wearing top hats, and that's a style in and of itself, and it's not just reserved for men. I actually believe that the men's top hat evolved from a women's hat that was popular around 1787. The first hats of that shape that you see were worn by women, and about 10 years later, men started wearing them. I asked Kimberly about the longevity of these kinds of businesses. Did dealers like Knoll have to change their inventory as styles evolved? Quite possibly, and that's happened at lots of times over history. After the French Revolution, for example, a lot of embroiderers and lace makers and shoemakers went out of business because nobody wanted luxury goods anymore. Jackie Kennedy was really instrumental in keeping the women's hat industry afloat, but after she sort of disappeared from public view, women's hats started going out of style. A lot of dressmakers that we remember as fashion designers, including Chanel and Halston, actually started out as hat makers but then they could kind of see that fashion was going in a different direction. So that's not an unusual thing, particularly in the hat business, because, you know, fashions do change, and the top hat is a very rare example of a long-lasting hat. But I think nothing lasts forever. And the designer uh, knows that and, and knows what's coming next. So top hats were in style for a long stretch of time, but worn by higher classes as fashions developed. Starting out as a fashion item for women, then taken from men, by the 1850s, it was the working man's hat. But trends had changed, and it became an expensive luxury hat by 1885, the year of this hat. Let's think about modern hats for a second. When was the last time you had a hat? Then think of the last time you put it on. What did that feel like? Most of the hats we wear today are baseball caps with decals. And most of us put our hats on a rack, not a personal portable box like this one. Top hats are inherently stylish by design. The tall crown, ribbon, and curled brim were meant to symbolize what upper-class men would wear by 1885. Imagine for a second. An upper-class businessman walks into Henry Knoll's hat shop. He puts on the top hat and walks outside on Franklin Avenue. A dusty street of central St. Louis in 1885. horses and carriages darting past him. As he arrives to work, steam engines roar in the Missouri sky.
Noel name printed on the inside of this hat is actually the son of a hat salesman. In an 1870 census, Henry Knoll Sr. wrote that he was a hat and cap dealer. This probably meant that he sold from a milliner or a larger hat company. And that was actually the case. In an 1885 St. Louis directory, he was listed as a salesman for the Guerdon Hat Company. That company started in 1860 and lasted 99 years until 1959. After some online digging, here's what I found. Henry Knoll Sr. was born in Prussia in 1833 and came to the United States with his wife Annie in 1860. In that same year, his son Henry Knoll Jr. was born. That is the Henry Knoll printed on the hat in question. After his father fought in the Civil War in 1864, he started selling hats, caps, and furs from 1866 until his death in 1880. But his son kept up the store, taking care of the family business passed down by his father. He sold hats in his 20s made from the Guerdon Hat Company. And actually, their shops in the 1880s were not far from each other, maybe 20 minutes or so by horse and carriage. The next chapter in Henry Knoll Jr.'s life is a little muddier. I found more than 100 different Henry Knolls, with their last names spelled in every possible variation. K-N-O-L-L-E, this family Knoll surname, is quite common but I was able to narrow down the last years of this hat dealer's life. Mere days before finishing this episode, I found some shocking evidence, a coroner's report. In 1896, St. Louis Globe Democrat newspaper stated that Noel fell from a streetcar with, quote, severe cuts to the chin and forehead, end quote. And after going back to work at the Guerdon Hat Company, he fell unconscious. A doctor and coroner concluded that he had concussion of the brain and officially died from cerebral hemorrhage and urinaria. He died almost 124 years exactly prior to this episode's release on October 24, 1896. He was 36 years old, no records of marriage or children that I could find, and he just fell twice. Once from the streetcar, the other at work, and then he was dead. I thought about this more. Could Mercury from his hat business play a role in his death? I asked Kimberly, the fashion historian heard earlier in the episode, about the treatment of beaver fur on top hats. And was there a main way to kind of treat animal fur? Like I've definitely heard of mercury being used. Would that be a common thing for top hats? Uh, when they were made of beaver fur, yes, the mercury was used. And that fur would get the phrase mad as a hatter because, of course, when you're right. inhaling mercury fumes all day, it can absolutely uh, give you brain damage. But that was a technique used to treat the fur and to make it lay down nicely and evenly and to create that sort of uniform surface. Well, look at that. Mercury can absolutely give you brain damage if you're inhaling it as a part of your job all day. Mercury was deemed innocuous in the 17th century by French hat makers. But it wasn't until the 1870s when mercury was categorized as a possible dangerous intoxicant. But that was in Europe. The United States continued using mercury in hat making until 1941. Mad Hatter's disease was a serious mental and physical ailment that could affect gastrointestinal and central nervous systems. That is possibly why Henry Knowles Coroner's report said cerebral hemorrhage and urinaria. 
but it is just a theory, with no definitive medical proof or official autopsy reports. The Knoll family is actually rife with tragedy. His father, Henry Knoll Sr., died in 1880. In the St. Louis death records, his cause of death is hemiplegia, a disease of the brain and spinal cord causing paralysis to one side of the body. He was only 47. The Knoll family seems to end there. Since I couldn't reach out to anyone who knew their hat-dealing descendants, I decided to follow the trail of the hat itself. My family bought the top hat years ago on an online antique site, so I contacted the shop owner. Along with a detailed description of the top hat's materials, the owner told me where she got it. She said that she got it from an auction house in Maryland in 2015. It came from the estate of Robert Vick and Charles Sibley in Portsmouth, Virginia. I looked them up and found that they had passed away recently. Charles Sibley passed away in 2005 and Robert Vick in 2010. The name Sibley may sound familiar to those in the Chesapeake Bay area. That's because he was a local celebrity in certain circles. Red Shrine is but one of 11 abstract compositions and five figurative studies on display by former ODU art professor Charles Sibley, who's been exhibited at Pittsburgh's Carnegie Institute and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. The new compositions by the Portsmouth resident are the culmination of a four-and-a-half-month surge in creativity. I'm excited by and involve myself in many modes of visual expression. I like to do an abstraction, uh, or a non-objective if you so choose. He says he doesn't like to be confined to one form of visual expression. Some of his work is inspired by visits to Africa, such as this one entitled Zimbabwe. And others are inspired by his views about... He was a professor and creator of the art department at Old Dominion University. He traveled the world and collected many antiques through his trips with Robert Vick. I contacted the art department at Old Dominion University and found that there is actually an art scholarship named after Sibley. Peter, a professor and chairman of the art department, sent my email around to some other faculty there. I contacted one of his leads, Teresa Annis, who was an art writer for the Virginian Pilot. She first met Charles in the late 1970s and had many conversations with him, most of which are included in an obituary she wrote about him in 2005. I'm Teresa Annis. I'm a longtime arts writer in the Hampton Roads area. So I was a staff arts writer for the Virginian Pilot in Norfolk for 28 years. When was the first time that you met Charles? I began writing about the arts in our area when I was in my early 20s, like maybe 23. See, that would have been in the late 70s. And it wasn't long before I was the, the dominant voice in visual arts in this area. And so when I first encountered Charles Sibley, he was outside of his 1835 English basement house home in Old Town, Portsmouth. So I greeted him. And the first thing he asked me as a challenge was, how do you draw? Do you draw? Do you like to shade in or do you just do a, a line? I said, well, you know, I like a, just a, a, a strong line myself. How about yourself? <laughs> and so he would always ask me a challenging question or two whenever I would encounter him, which I was used to. And I was ready for I didn't care. <laughs> Interesting. He was kind of bitter, but also very fun. He <laughs> had strong sarcasm in his personality. Some of the edges in him, I mean, he had, seemed to have a sadness underneath him. 
this awkward thing to bring up, but here's what I really think. He was closet gay. It was an aspect of his era and living in the South. He felt that he had to keep his relationship with Robert Vick under wraps. They always referred to one another as my dear friend, and they lived next door to one another, especially later in life. They were lifelong partners. Robert was a little bit younger and also a painter. They were both painters. Thinking back about him, he may have been dealing with a little depression. And what could be more depressing than to have to suppress your your natural sexuality, that basic part of yourself, to have to suppress that and pretend. Looking at Sibley's later artwork, it seemed to me that his depression might have leaked into his expressionist painting style. There are some parallels to the life of Henry Knoll, the hat salesman, and Charles Sibley. They both suffered from an untreated disease, but Charles could channel it into his art. As a professor, he unfortunately directed his malaise outwardly onto his students. You know, he was full of himself when he came to Norfolk, Virginia, teaching at what was even not yet called Old Dominion University. He essentially started the art department from nothing. He was edgy. He could be difficult. He insulted his students at Old Dominion. People would Mm. cry, and he was sarcastic. But he had a lot of big collectors in the area, a lot of people who would boast, I have eight Sidleys, well, I have 12, you know, really. He was uh, yeah. a bragging point in this area. He is called the father of the local visual arts community here in southeastern Virginia. Where, where does this top hat fit into all of this? Well, he was not ostentatious in his appearance at all. He was, you know, very low-key. Of course, anything that Charles owned may very well have gone to his good friend, Robert Vick, who in turn sold it. But we don't really know, do we, who purchased it and why. And I'll tell you (laughs) that Charles Sibley, I can't ever think of him wearing a hat. Where does this come from, this hat and and his sensibility, I wonder. And did you Uh, go to where they lived in Portsmouth? Did you visit them there? Yeah, I can visualize it. It was beautifully done with the antiques and fine rugs and fine furniture and, you know, a lot of antiques. I wish I could have known and could flash back and look for that hat and ask about it. (laughs) He is known for collecting pre-Columbian art Mm -hmm. and collecting African art objects. He had grown up very poor in Huntington, West Virginia, and he probably craved find things that he could never have. We theorize the many ways Sibley or Vic could have used this hat as a game for their guests or just up on a shelf as an artifact, but we didn't know anything. Teresa said that she would ask a few people who may know where he bought this hat. I would, I would like to know. It would be interesting. Maybe I could ask around and see if anyone has a clue among yeah. his circle who knew him, who were still in this area and alive. <laughs> yeah, which couple, is a hard I have thing. three different people I could ask. I will actually try that because you've gotten me curious about that. Sounds like fun. All right. Alrighty, thank you so much. You're welcome, Thatcher. Good luck. All right. See you later. This episode story is a little different because there is no conclusive ending. 
Most of Charles's friends, including his sister, have passed away. Teresa is still asking around to see if she can find any more information, and the one person she did ask knew nothing. Here is where we can end the story, by keeping it open. We do know that Charles Sibley and Robert Vick collected a lot of fine art and refined antiques. In one biography written about Charles Sibley, there is a mention of his estate, the 1835 townhome Teresa described. In December of 2000, Sibley talked about his home in an issue of the El Decor magazine, eight pages long, showcasing his architecture, art, and antiques. I cannot find an easy way to see the pictures or the description of the magazine digitally, but I would hope that in one picture, in the waxy pages, a worn leather hat box and an exquisite top hat would be displayed as a focal point in their eclectic collection. Well, there we have it. A large hat box and a beautiful top hat made 135 years ago are mementos of a Missouri family hat business that ended in tragedy. Death surrounded the Knoll family, and as it made its way around the United States, the top hat ended up in the hands of two famous Virginian artists. It now rests high on a shelf as an artifact of fashion in my living room. Every object has a story, even if there's no ending. This was episode 3 of 5 for season 1 of Object Obscura. If you like what you hear and you want to listen to more, then rate and subscribe by hitting that subscribe button and clicking the number of stars. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write me a review because I love feedback. Go to Instagram at object.obscura and Facebook at Object Obscura podcast to see all related pictures of the object on today's episode. Do you want to have your object be on the show? Then write me a message, write where you're from and the story of your object. I know we got some Singapore audience out there. It can be something creepy, mysterious, or just strange. Message me at Thatcher, T-H-A-T-C-H-E-R at object-obscura.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and the website object-obscura.com. This is an Anchor Distributed Podcast, created, edited, sound mixed, researched, and produced by me, Thatcher Warwick Hess. Written by me, Ben Hess, and Shannon Warwick. Previously played themed music is St. Louis, composed by my good friend Alec Leal. Special thanks to the Virginian pilot, Peter Udenbach, Allison Stinley, Mary Beth Hale Antiques, YouTube, and Laura L. Comarlengo on the DeYoung Museum website. Further thanks to Freesound and Fezlian Studios. All other song and archival credits are in the description. I would definitely recommend looking at Sibley and Vic's beautiful artwork online. Next episode comes out in two weeks on November 13th. The next objects have a lot of strings, but can't be played. Have a happy Halloween, get out and vote. See you soon.